We will continue in uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 1. This will be session 4. And we will focus on the vision of Jesus Christ. Last hour, I was trying to spell the Greek word. And you've got to keep in mind, I'm an engineer, so spelling's a problem. I had it right the first time. <laughs> I always have to check. And on these whiteboards, there's no spell check, so I'm really in trouble. Last session, we were talking about this benediction of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we looked at verse 5 that focuses on who he is. And then verse 5, the second part through verse 6, what he has done. And it's actually John just beginning to worship and realize what he's doing is very significant. And in this worship, uh, he tells us a lot about the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is, what he has done. And we ended by looking at the end of verse 6, this outburst of praise. And then beginning in verse 7, we have uh, what he shall do. And the essence of what he shall do in the future is return. And we have a little summary, uh, again, of a major theme and a major destination of the book of Revelation. And the verse says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. That little verse is packed full. And it actually is probably a combination of two Old Testament passages. It probably combines Daniel 7.13 with Zechariah 12.10. Daniel 7.13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Uh, that seems to be the one who is coming with clouds. A reference. Psalm 108 might be also a thought there. Verse 3. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. In fact, the association with clouds is quite common uh, not only in terms of the actual arrival or second coming, but we will meet him in the clouds, is what First uh, Thessalonians tells us. Jesus, in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24:13, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on clouds, of the sky with power and great glory. Now, it's not clear why there's an association with clouds. Uh, it might be a, a reminder of uh, the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament. It's not clear. But uh, 
There's several passages that associate Christ's return with the clouds. So it uh, is a reference to the second coming to kind of introduce us to the major theme here. Now, the next part of the verse, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, probably comes out of Zechariah 12.10, but it also reflects the historical situation of the crucifixion. Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Uh, That was considered messianic and I think John kind of confirms that as well as just the historical incident of Christ's death on the cross. Uh, So verse 7 picks up those two and associates the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming uh, with two Old Testament passages. Now, how does this passage, I'll ask you the question, how does this passage refute preteritism? This is a passage that we can use to kind of argue against the position of those that believe all of this is fulfilled in the first century. Notice anything there? How about the little phrase, every eye shall see him. Did every eye see him in 70 A.D.? Probably only those that were in Jerusalem and they only saw the interpretation of the preterist in terms of what is coming, what they interpret as the second coming. So in terms of the coming of the Lord, uh, it was very limited to only the inhabitants of Jerusalem and those that happened to be there. So there's one little note there that might... Uh, add to a, an accumulation of data that will refute preterism. So we have kind of a universal idea. Every eye shall see him, even those who have pierced him. And then it also singles out, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. That's also a universal idea there, even so. Now, even those who pierced him is probably a limited view. So those that saw him or witnessed him, uh, we have universal language here. It includes at least two groups here. I think we have a group of Jewish witnesses in the little phrase, even those who pierced him. I think it's specifically... Uh, referring to the historical incident, but then when it speaks of every eye, and also the last phrase there, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. Uh, Extends this universal idea beyond uh, uh, the nation of Israel and includes uh, probably Gentiles. So, the second coming, and and Jesus emphasizes this also in in the Olivet Discourse. Uh, It's not a coming that, uh, when he says, uh, go 
you know, go in the wilderness to find him. It, it, it's going to be overt. It's going to be very visible, very evident. Uh, no one's going to miss it. The, the actual return of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's going to be universally observed. Uh, no one will miss it. It's going to be um, unmistakable. In fact, it'll be very clear and it'll be a revelation. Uh, people that have rejected him will know who he is. They will know that this is the Lord Jesus Christ. They will know that their time is up and uh, uh, it is not going to be something quiet or, or secret. And, and by the way, I was alluding uh, to that experience that I had uh, as a new believer and getting into the book. This is one of the passages that also refuted that idea of this other cult uh, leader in his claim to to be the second coming. Uh, this passage kind of stuck out in my thinking. Uh, not every eye saw him. In fact, his was a limiting, limited appearance as well. And uh, when I was studying the book of Revelation, I remember vividly this passage just uh, almost convincing me that he was a false prophet. I was also beginning to realize from other passages that there was this concept of false teaching and false doctrine and Doctrines of demons and cults and these other ideas. But this was a passage that was very, very uh, uh, eye-opening to me to, to realize, you know, this passage is speaking of everybody and every eye. And the more I read and as I looked at chapter 19 and all of the overt statements in terms of just the vividness and other passages in the book of Revelation, uh, these were key passages in convincing me that uh, what I had encountered was, in fact, a cult. And I was beginning to put the pieces together, but this kind of confirmed it for me. So this introductory description of the second coming is just kind of another little theme that uh, will be developed in greater detail as we work through and then in verse 8, we have kind of like a, an announcement. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come. Now, this is similar to what we already looked at. And again, uh, the debate is whether it's the Lord Jesus Christ or whether it's the Father and again, it's not real clear. Uh, there's evidence that it could be either. Uh, so I'll let you kind of decide on your own. The Alpha and the Omega comes from the Old Testament. And the Alpha and the Omega in the Old Testament is a reference to Yahweh. But the New Testament also identifies the Alpha and the Omega with Jesus Christ, which indicates Jesus is equivalent to Yahweh. So if it's Jesus Christ, it's a note of deity of the Lord Jesus Christ in that he is eternal. Uh, the phrase conveyed the idea of eternality. And as it identifies the Lord God, that kind of inclines us to thinking that maybe this is the Father. But if Jesus is in fact God, then it could be the Lord Jesus Christ as well. Who is and who was could be either. Those, that phrase also is a reference of the Father, but it is also used in terms of the Son. Maybe the key phrase is the very last one, the Almighty, which almost exclusively in the Bible is a reference to the Father. That's not to deny that 
Jesus is not omnipotent as well, but this phrase is usually, at least uh, almost exclusively as far as I know, a reference to the Father. So personally, I conclude that verse 8 is uh, uh, God himself speaking and claiming to be the eternal Alpha and the Omega, identifying himself as the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come. And we would interpret that phrase similarly to the, the phrase that we interpreted in verse 5. Uh, the omnipotent one or the almighty. So verse 8 is kind of a introduction by God himself, God the Father. Uh, we have a similar closing in the book of Revelation in chapter 2 as the book closes. So it's kind of book-ended with announcements by probably the, the Father himself. So these opening passages are, are very Trinitarian, if you will, where we have words from the Father and words from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, beginning in verse 9, we have the vision of Jesus Christ. So that concludes the introduction that included a prologue, verses 1 through 3, and a benediction that included worship in verses 4 through 8, and then beginning in uh, verse 9 through verse 20, uh, at the end of the chapter I see as the vision of Jesus Christ, or I summarize that whole passage as the vision. Now I see three parts to the vision. I see an introduction to it, verses 9 through 11 on your outline sheet. And uh, you'll notice I'm going to use a lot. I, I, I like to use alliteration, and that's the reason why I choose the indescribable, because that's what it is. Uh, it's a picture of Jesus Christ, but it's a picture that is indescribable. There aren't words to describe him. Jesus does the best that he can to convey what he sees. Uh, this is not going to be uncommon. We're going to see other visions that John sees that uh, he's at a loss to come up with words to try to convey what he is visualizing. He is seeing things that no man has seen. He is seeing things that are beyond description. And we have to use our own imagination to try to capture something of what John saw. Uh, we have an inspired revelation here. But how do you describe an eternal person? How do you describe a glorified Christ? Uh, we have no way to really see that. Uh, we'll uh, probably be somewhat even surprised when we see the Lord for ourselves. So that's what John is trying to do. So I call it the indescribable. He's, he's describing the indescribable in verses 12 through 16. That's the heart. Uh, that's the essence of the vision. And then we have uh, associated with the vision the impact that it has particularly on, on John in verses 17 through 20. So that's how I see uh, the structure or the, the outline here. We have the introduction. And then, as I said early at the very beginning, the third part of this division of chapters 1 through 3 are the seven letters to the seven churches beginning in chapter 2 where that same resurrected, glorified Christ that is pictured in this vision is once again speaking 
or continuing to speak, and also describing himself in terms of the vision that we'll look at. So let's first of all look at this little introduction beginning in verse 9. And we have John introduced, I, John, and we mentioned he mentions himself four times. This is the third mention. The fourth one is in uh, the last chapter in the epilogue to the whole book. I, John, your brother. Who is this John? Well, I introduced him in terms of trying to identify which John. But we could also, if we had time, expand on a little bit of the, the life of John. Uh, we won't go into much detail. We could talk about his, uh, his, his family. He is one of, obviously, the, uh, the apostles. Uh, he had a, another brother that was another apostle. And we could talk about that relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and go trace it back through his family. Uh, one of the disciples of Christ, uh, we could talk about his ministry. You're familiar with that as an apostle in the book of Acts, along with Peter, he is prominent. But I'll leave that for your study. Uh, the slides that I'm using, I've, I've used in, a, in an extended study of the book of Revelation, kind of a more detailed exposition. I use the same slides for the class as well. So that's John identifying himself. And then he tells us a little bit about himself and primarily focusing on his circumstances. And the first thing that I see is the first circumstance he is his attitude in the circumstance that he's in. He could have said, uh, John the Apostle, John the leader of the church of Ephesus. John, uh, the inner circle of Jesus Christ. John, the fellow observer of Peter and, and others. Uh, but he identifies himself as brother, uh, Adelphos. Uh, a humble attitude. Uh, after all of these visions, he could have identified himself as the one who saw Jesus Christ, who is uniquely able to see Christ who not many did in the form that, Jesus, uh, that uh, John sees. But he identifies himself as a brother. In other words, he's associated us to us simply as another one that is part of the family of God. Another description that he gives here, a fellow partaker. He's a suffering partaker in the tribulations, three things, or tribulation, the kingdom and perseverance. All of these words are associated with suffering. That's why I call it the suffering partnership. The Greek word there is sunkanosnos, or how do you pronounce it? Sunkanosnos. Cut me slack, I'm an engineer. Keep reminding you. <clears throat> fellow partaker, uh, basically one that partakes together. It's a combination of two words, a word that is associated with fellowship and a preposition soon, S-U-N, transliterated, 
put together. So it has the idea of partaking together or like a partnership. A partnership in three things. In overt persecution. John was the uh, victim of uh, Domitian's persecution. He was on the island, exiled. He had suffered, and he probably alludes to attempts to take his life. But because God had a plan to reveal these things to him, God preserved him. And perhaps even miraculously, if the attempt was in a uh, boiling oil situation. So, he experienced tribulation, and this is part of his humility here, in that uh, he, he, he doesn't uh, speak in terms of the, the glorious aspects of his ministry, but he kind of identifies with other believers that were also suffering under Domitian. He throws in the idea of the kingdom with the idea of hope. We have a, an end and a purpose. In other words, the tribulation doesn't continue. In fact, that's reinforced with the next verse in perseverance. In other words, the kingdom is the object and the perseverance is what we are uh, waiting and persevering towards. So, these three things, he is a partaker with other believers in the first century. Uh, He also identifies his physical location. Was on the island called Patmos. Patmu in the Greek text. I showed you a few slides. Here's a few others of the same island. It's sparsely populated even to this day, but there is a city. I think that's the city of Patmos on the northern shore uh, on the top there. Oops. Up here, uh, part of it, uh, modern Patmos would be on that little cove there. And then a blow-up, a blow-up basically of, of this area is believed that there's evidence that that's where John was isolated in terms of his uh, place of prison, imprisonment. There's a little location there. And we have the cave of the apocalypse that I showed you last last night. There's also a monastery of St. John on the island. I didn't take these photos. I had... Uh, these given to me by a, a friend that did visit the island in order to share with you. <laughs> uh, just more to give you the idea of the desolateness of the island and the sparse population. So that's the physical location of John. And we also have a mention of his spiritual state. I was on the island called Patmos because of the Word of God and testimony of Jesus. Again, kind of a reiteration of what we already looked at. Uh, He's a faithful witness, giving testimony, giving relevant uh, testimony of what he is observing. And then verse 10, I was in the Spirit. Uh, What does that mean? Because of its prominence here and in a prophetic context, 
It's probably not in the same sense that you and I are called upon to walk in the Spirit. Uh, It probably is in something of what some charismatics uh, would emphasize. Now, I'm not saying that their experience is necessarily a legitimate one, but I I think it it goes beyond the normal filling, the normal in the Spirit that Paul speaks of and that we have in terms of uh, the typical experience of the believer. I, I, I think because it's called attention to here and in this context... It may be that he is in a prophetic state, if you will, where the Spirit is, is opening his eyes to see things uh, that even the normal Christian would not see. Uh, so in that sense, in kind of a prophetic sense, where things are going to be opened up to him, he's going to see things in heaven that we cannot see. Uh, I take it in uh, in that sense. I think it calls attention to itself. So this is a special, I guess you could call it kind of a prophetic filling of the Spirit or empowering of the Spirit here. Uh, that's his spiritual state. And I think he identifies this because he is going to s- describe for us things that basically are indescribable and are not from him. These, the, everything that he sees are things that his eyes were opened up uh, in order to be able to see. So it goes beyond human ability, goes beyond, I think, the normal just filling of the Holy Spirit. We would have been standing right next to John and he would be seeing things that we probably would not see unless God gave us that same enablement. So I think this is something uh, uh, unique and something uh, uh, special. It's called attention to because it's mentioned in, I think, at least four other passages that we'll encounter as we go through through the book. So he speaks a little bit of his spiritual state. In fact, those other passages, I think, are Worthy of calling attention to right away. If I can find them. Yes, in chapter 17, he mentions being in the spirit. And it's probably the phrase is very similar to what we have here. And it's probably just a reiteration of a similar experience that he's outlining here at the very beginning. Chapter 17, verse 3, chapter 21, verse 10 are other usages in the book of Revelation. So that's his spiritual state. He also identifies a time frame, which is debated amongst the commentators as well. On the Lord's day, uh, what is that? Uh, Is that the day of the Lord? which we will be talking more about. Uh, The day of the Lord uh, is an Old Testament phrase again that is eschatological, relating to the coming of the Messiah, probably emphasizing the persecution and the tribulation aspect that the Jews would encounter, the day of the Lord. In other words, God's special time of working 
is the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. And his special time of working primarily deals with dealing with the issue of evil. And in order to deal with the issue of evil, there's a separation out. God separating out that that he loves from that that he will judge. We call that judgment. That's what judgment is all about. Uh, That's probably the Old Testament concept of the day of the Lord. Well, that's possibly what's in view. And that's what some of the commentators hold when he references that here. Or the other possibility is just simply on Sunday. (laughs) It's on the day of the Lord. Uh, I'm not sure which one has the most weight. And then it goes on. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus. There's Ephesus. To Smyrna. There's Smyrna. To Pergamum. There's Pergamum. Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. We will focus more on them in chapters 2 and 3. And we'll talk about why these seven and not others that were possibilities. So, John is commanded to write. And uh, where does it come from? Uh, It's a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. So it's a crisp, blasting voice, unmistakable. Uh, This is an image, kind of like a blast of a trumpet, if it's close by, uh, almost deafening. Uh, Conveys this idea full of energy, full of power, distinct and clear. This voice that he hears, and it speaks to him, and it commands him to write in a book. And, and by the way, the total contents of the book of Revelation, based on this verse, and uh, there's a couple of other verses as well, uh, we should take that this, the whole book of Revelation was conveyed to each of the seven churches. Uh, the seven churches didn't just simply receive, for example, the church at Ephesus didn't simply receive those first few verses in chapter 2. And Smyrna just didn't receive just that little portion there. It seems like the whole book. And what we have in chapters 2 and 3 are just particular little uh, letters, if you will, that are particularly applicable to those particular churches. But the whole book is intended to go to all seven. And then from those seven, uh, we would understand just like the rest of Scripture, Uh, the entire book of Revelation would, uh, as it's recognized as Scripture, uh, it would be distributed to all believers that uh, wanted to have Scripture available to them. Uh, So, don't. this is kind of the thrust of verse 11. Write in a book what you see. That's the content of the book of Revelation. Uh, Later on, they will receive a particular special message contained in the broader book 
that is applicable to that particular church. But the whole book is intended for all of the churches. Does that make sense? And we have the listing of them. And turning, verse 12, turning to see. Uh, this is a different Greek word. Uh, I mentioned, uh, we talked about many visions, and there's at least three Greek words that are used uh, to convey the idea of what John is, is looking at. I mentioned uh, Adeo occurs, I think, over 54 times, I believe, if I remember right. Uh, most of the usages, uh, or most of the words when it's translated, and I saw, is a deo. But here we have a different word. It's, it's blepo. It's, it's kind of to, to focus in on something close by. So he sees something. Uh, it's also interesting, I turn to see a vo- the voice. How do, you, how do you see a voice? Well, I think it's a little figure of speech. I don't remember the name that uh, they used to describe it. Uh, the idea of not seeing, but actually hearing. So I turn to see the voice or the personage behind the voice, seeing the personage behind the voice. That was speaking with me. Now we know who, this, who is the speaker from the description that we have. Uh, it's not clear in verse 11. We just have the commander right. But now in, in verse 12, John turns to see, and having turned, I saw, there's the common word for the visions that he sees, seven golden lampstands. So he immediately sees uh, what typically would bring images in the minds of the readers of the first century. Uh, I'll show you a photograph in a moment. That's just another map to kind of. Give you another perspective of the uh, the area. Patmos over here, about 70 miles from Ephesus, by way of the sea, and then the seven churches that we described on the other map. So he's going to s- describe the indescribable. Uh, this is the ultimate shock and awe. I put this slide together when we were about to invade uh, Iraq. And that was the phrase that they used in terms of what they were going to do to the Iraqis during the early part of the Iraqi war in uh, uh, right after 9-11, George Bush. Uh, Book of Revelation, this is the ultimate shock and awe is a, is a vision or a picture of the resurrected Christ. And what we see, what we will see here is the glorified Christ in his glory, a picture that uh, few saw, but we will be able to participate in this vision just by reading what John describes here. And like I said, you need to kind of use your imagination because John is trying to convey to us something that I believe is indescribable. And he will probably, I think the essence of it is he is going to describe a judge and a king. And that is the primary function of the Lord Jesus Christ in the second coming. First coming, he came primarily as a priest, as a mediator, as a, uh, as a sacrifice 
related to a priestly function. The second coming, he comes primarily to judge and to rule. But he must judge before he rules. So I think the imagery, and as we go through it, I'll try to support the idea that what we have pictured here is a picture of a judge and a king. And we'll see expansion of that uh, when we get to later passages. John will try to describe the indescribable by using eight similes, comparing something that we do know or something that we are familiar with with something that uh, he is having trouble describing in words. So when John turns, he first sees seven golden lampstands. And here's my outline, and I'm using alliteration here. Uh, an acknowledgement of the person that, he, that is speaking. Verse 12. Now, what he sees is, is not what commonly the Jews thought of, of a lampstand. This is a single lampstand. And this is a very common symbol in Judaism, and this was present in the temple. In fact, this is a spectacular piece of uh, artwork right here. Uh, you, you, you don't get a feel for it by looking at it. I took this photograph. It's in Jerusalem. Uh, this stands about seven foot tall, and they told me that it's solid gold. So this is impressive. Probably. Could be. Uh, it's encased in this kind of bulletproof plexiglass or special container. You, you can't. The rest of that museum empty back there? Yeah, it's not a museum. It's kind of a uh, kind of a walkway to a different place over there. Yeah, it's not a museum. It's just out there. Uh, but I just show that. Just uh, that's probably not the image here. It's not a unified lampstand like the Jewish lampstand. These are individual lamps that uh, were very common, something like this. This is probably something like what John saw. I saw seven, uh, this one's not quite golden, but he saw seven golden lampstands. This is very common. In fact, this is an archaeological uh, artifact that dates to probably the first century or maybe shortly after, where this would contain oil. And obviously, this would be lit with a wick here, and the purpose of a lampstand, it bears light. And that's the image that we have that John sees. So he sees seven of something that probably looked like this. And as he is looking here, there's one in the midst of the lampstand. So perhaps they're arranged in maybe a circular pattern. So it's not, don't think of the menorah, the, the Jewish menorah. Think of seven individual lampstands uh, with a personage in the middle of it. Uh, and that's the main reason I call this whole section the vision of Jesus Christ among the seven churches. That's what G, uh, John sees. And as he stands in the midst of these seven lampstands, now John is going to describe uh, the, the personage, and then Jesus Christ is going to speak to John 
and that speak speaking is going to extend all the way through the end of uh, chapter three. So that's how I see the passage structured. Okay. So verse twelve is John acknowledges the personage and the situation. Verse thirteen, he sees something of an acquaintance. I'm using A as alliteration here. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man. So there, there's something that reminds John of a personage that took the title son of man. And this is Jesus' favorite description of himself. He uses it more commonly of himself than anyone in the Gospels. He calls himself the son of man. Now, I think there's two, at least two significances of uh, the usage of the Son of Man. And I think the the Lord Jesus took on that title for himself uh, because it has, uh, first of all, a messianic association. The uh, Son of Man comes from the Old Testament, that Daniel 7, uh, 13 passage that we read earlier. Daniel saw a personage, the Son of Man, and it was a messianic picture. And I think what Jesus is doing is associating himself with that messianic figure in Daniel 7, uh, in the Gospels, when Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man. He also is using it, I think, in the sense of identifying as fully human. We believe in the deity of Christ, but we also believe in the full humanity of Christ as well. And part of the evidence of the humanity of Christ is the title that Jesus Christ took as the Son of Man. He's associated with man. He had parentage. He has lineage. He's associated with David. He has lineage back to Abraham. And in Luke's Gospel, we have his genealogy traced all the way to Adam. So, he's... Fully man. So John sees this. So there's something of an acquaintance. There's something of similarity. There's something that reminds him of the earthly human Jesus of the Gospels. In verse 13. One like a son of man. So it's like a son of man, but there's there's drastic differences as well. It's not exactly like what he remembers as he uh, shared meals and walked Palestine and observed miracles and had a part in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like a son of man with all of the associations. In other words, this is that personage, but he's so different in what I see now. And now he begins to try to describe something that is undescribable. Like a son of man, and he's going to give us his attire in verse 13. Clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. Uh, By the way, that son of man uh, idea in Isaiah 53, 2 tells us, Uh, A little bit. In fact, this is the only passage that kind of gives us a hint in terms of what Jesus looked like 
in his humanity. Uh, he, he didn't stand out in a crowd, is what Isaiah 53.2 says. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. In other words, he was this common. He was every day. Uh, you would not have been surprised. Uh, you would not have been impressed with him. He was fully human in every way. This is the only passage that I know of that gives us any hint that, uh, in terms of his physical appearance. Uh, that's what John is looking at here. And something of this image or something of this vision reminds him of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the attire here, Let me give you some Old Testament passages or associations here. In terms of the dress, it could be the dress of a prophet. Sometimes prophets dressed in a similar way. Zechariah chapter 3 verse 4 seems to describe the prophet in a similar fashion here. 1 Samuel 28.14 as well. Uh, this was also associated with a judge, similar garments. Uh, kings were dressed in uh, robes reaching down as this one does with a girdle. Priests were also associated with this kind of attire. In fact, probably more frequently priests. Uh, but I think the priestly image is probably quite secondary in the book of Revelation. I think the idea of king and judge are prominent. And we're going to see that uh, in more detail in more of the description. At least that's what I think the text is giving us here. And that's supported by the, the function, the, the primary functions of the Lord Jesus Christ in the second coming. So that's his attire. And I think the best view in terms of what the image is, is the dress of a judge and a, and a king. Verses 14 through 16 are descriptions of his appearance. And more detail is given in terms of what he appeared like to John. His head and his hair were white like white, uh, white wool, like snow. So the first simile, or the first image in terms of the appearance, uh, focuses in on his hair. In the Old Testament, uh, the imagery of hair and whiteness is oftentimes two, two associations. One with age, which kind of hints at his eternality. Uh, but also wisdom. With age comes wisdom. For example, Daniel 7, 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, much like what we have here. And his hair of his head was like pure wool. And that's probably where the image comes from. Daniel 7, 9. His throne was ablaze with flames, so we have further description here. And 
some of the other associations may be associated with the following in that. Uh, the image probably comes from there. Uh, another association, now in Daniel 7.9, we have the Ancient of Days. Uh, we have uh, probably the Father in view, so we have an association of, of Christ in terms of appearance. Uh, in terms of uh, grayness, uh, Proverbs 16.31, a gray head is a crown of glory. And that's what John sees. It is found in the way of righteousness. Associated with purity, wisdom, and age. So perhaps his eternality, his glorious aspect, his holiness and purity may be in view in that image of his appearance, first image of his appearance. The second image in verse 14, his eyes were like a flame of fire. The, uh, probably the idea today, if we were to convey it in uh, contemporary terms, it would be like eyes like a blowtorch blow that can cut through steel. Uh, with a flame that can burn right through four inches of steel. And we have uh, images like that today. Uh, this is what John sees. So you have to use your imagination here in terms of uh, what is being conveyed here in terms of the image. Now, it's not a flame of fire, but something like. So he's trying to describe something that is hard to, hard to describe. Closest he does is like a flame of fire, a piercing fire. Uh, that probably looks at omniscience. He can see through steel. He can see through all things. That there's nothing that is a barrier to his vision here. He can see uh, right through our hearts. And there's an energy about it. Uh, there's, a, there's a power behind that vision. His eyes like a flame. So his head, eternality, purity, you could add wisdom, age, Eyes, omniscience. So this king, this judge, is going to be able to see right through all the excuses, all of the attempts to rationalize sin. He's going to have proper evaluation. He's going to have all of the facts. He's going to judge righteously. And when he rules in the kingdom, his rulership is going to be with that same omniscience. He's going to know all of the options in ruling. And when he rules, he's going to be wise because he has all the wisdom to be able to make correct uh, decisions. That's the king that will rule. He has eyes like a flame of fire. Verse 15, and his feet were like burnished bronze. This is a, like a gold ore or fine brass or bronze. Uh, apparently in the uh, first century they were able to alloy metals together and make... Uh, metal 
instruments, and John sees something like that, his feet. Uh, this conveys the idea of power and strength. Probably, or wait a minute, did I miss one there? Voice? Mm, his feet were like burnished bronze. I must have that out of order. Yeah, his his voice is the next image there. Oh no, no, I got that. That's okay. His feet are wrath. Uh, the image is that of wrath. Uh, feet that can stomp on sin in a way that deals with it. Uh, maybe an allusion to Daniel ten six, another vision that Daniel had, his body also was like burl, his, his face had the appearance of lightning, his eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, very similar image, and the sound of his words were like the sound of a tumult, power. And in Revelation 15, we have next the voice. So the feet were like burnished bronze when he had, uh, when when it had been caused to glow in a furnace. So heat is applied here, at least part of the image. And then his voice was like the sound of many waters. If you've uh, been to Niagara Falls or if you've been uh, near rushing waters, you, you do have a sense of, of power. In fact, we generate electricity at dams where you have uh, water turning huge term turbines. Uh, many waters, uh, the image of, of power here which would convey the idea that the one that John is seeing is an omnipotent person. So these images are, I think, conveying something that uh, you can't describe. How do you describe omnipotence? How do you describe something that has so much power that you can't describe and contain it? Uh, so these images are trying to convey these ideas, I think. How do you convey wrath? Uh, well, this image of his feet is John's attempt to describe the indescribable. And then in verse 16, and in his right hand he held seven stars. Now at this point we don't know what the stars are. When we get to verse 20 it will be interpreted for us. But I think an image that is conveyed here these stars, we'll find, we'll find out, are angels. And uh, the hands, in general, uh, are associated with the work of God and His, His hand over all things. And I think sovereignty is the image behind that, or the idea behind uh, the image, rather. In His right hand, He held seven stars. And that's, as we've said before, the concept that uh, will be overwhelming in the uh, book of Revelation. Uh, he has control over the seven stars. 
And then out of his mouth, we have another image, another simile. Out of his mouth, a sharp two-edged sword. Now, this one is placed as a metaphor in this context. And I think what's in view here is judgment, which is associated with the wrath. Uh, and again, the, the sword was used in terms of military action and was dealt, uh, is, and we'll see a lot of that in, uh, in the book of Revelation. God will use war and warfare as an instrument of judgment uh, continuously throughout the book of Revelation. So, in this context, probably not so much associated with the Word of God as a sword sometimes is like in the book of Hebrews. This may be an example of a symbol or a, an image that has a dual um, usage. In this context, I think more the idea of judgment. Now, the word may be used in terms of judging, in terms of based on what the word teaches concerning God's principles and God's standards. But the idea, I think, of judgment is, is more uh, prominent. And then the, uh, the last image, uh, his face. So we have his head, his eyes, his, his voice, his hand, his mouth. And then finally, his face, kind of a summation of the perfections of God, I think conveys the idea of glory. His face was like the sun shining in its strength. So if you can imagine, uh, if you look at the sun, what's it going to do to your eyes? It's going to blind you. So to look at the, the face of this personage is a blinding experience. Glorious. Uh, it would be good to take the take the time and just meditate on these images and try to try to envision what John saw. Uh, and in our finiteness, we'll certainly not capture everything there, but I think it'll have an effect upon us, and hopefully, it'll have the same effect that uh, it had on John. So that's kind of the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these images will come back and we'll see most of these in uh, the seven letters to the seven churches. Uh, Jesus will identify himself as the one that is described in this vision. And he will take some of these images and images and they will be associated with what is going on in those particular churches. And how uh, the implication is, is how he will deal with those churches. So we're going to see these again as we work our way through the seven letters. <clears throat> what was the impact that all this had on John? Beginning in verse 17, we have the effect and when I saw him, there's that word again, that word that we'll see several times, adeo. When I saw him, so this, this, is a, this is a vision, this is reinforcing this idea that we've been stressing throughout so far. Everything is visual in the book of Revelation. 
Very, very visual. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And that should be the, the effect when we encounter and, and truly uh, experience the presence of God. And for John to have this vision just wiped him out, fell flat on his face. Now, personally, I seldom feel so impacted uh, because of probably sin and lack of vision and lack of ability to submit and all the failings. Uh, But John came face to face with the living God, and this is the impact. Now, we have a relationship with the living God. The living God dwells within us. The Holy Spirit, Spirit dwells within us. Uh, so I think it should have a like effect upon us, if not causing us to fall physically on our face. I think John fell on his face physically. I fell at his feet as a dead man. He prostrated with no energy. Just totally drained with the impact of seeing the resurrected Christ. And in that context, I think the application we can draw is our hearts at least should be bowed. Our hearts should be prostrate. Uh, that's the proper, ad, uh, proper position of worship. And we'll see that this is a consistent image also in many of the visions that we'll look at of heaven. Those that are before the throne, for example, they will be prostrate. 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 I don't want to get those two mixed up. <laughs> Prostrate. <laughs> Flat on their faces. Uh, this is John's experience here. This is also a consistent image in the Old Testament. It's an image of humility. Uh, real humility is a bowing down before God. It's a... Uh, Releasing of all of our energy, all of our intentions, all of our purposes, all of our ideas to just fall down and adore him and to recognize the awesomeness, the greatness of God. Uh, We see this in Genesis 17.3. And Abraham fell on his face and God talked with him. Abraham had the same experience. He came into an... uh, a personal experience with the living God. Moses in Exodus 3, 6. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses, what did he do? He hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So he could not stand to be in the immediate presence of God. Isaiah, in uh, Isaiah 6, as he sees a similar vision as John does in verse 5. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. That's the same idea as John. I'm like a dead man. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's knocked flat. He's knocked over. 
Ezekiel had that experience in a similar vision in chapter 1. In verse 28, he says, Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. That's the proper position. If not actual, and if not physical, at least the heart attitude of the position. Flat on our face, like a dead man. Daniel as well, Daniel 8.17. So he came near to where he was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and I fell on my face. Similarly, in... Daniel 10, verses 8 and 9, fell on his face. So the proper object of our worship is only God. God and only God. Whether it be the Father, or whether it be the Son, or whether it be the Spirit. That's the proper object. We've already seen that. We're gonna, that's going to be reiterated over and over and over as we work through uh, these worship scenes. So we have one immediately in chapter 1. In fact, this is the second one. John already bowed down in the uh, uh, benediction there. What happened to the three disciples after the transfiguration? They had a similar vision. They saw the transfigured Christ... In 17, Matthew 17, 6, when the disciples heard this, this is at the transfiguration, they fell on their faces and were much afraid. So the proper object is the Father. The content is who He is and what He has done. And the proper position is flat on our faces, at least in heart attitude. What happened to Paul in Acts 26.14? Actually, he's referring back to Acts 9, his conversion. But in Acts 26.14, he adds a little note here. Uh, it says, and when we had all fallen to the ground, we heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Paul was flat on his face. That's where John is. A little bit of an application there. Uh, hopefully after tonight, uh, after we meditate on this vision, that it might have a similar impact on us. And it would not be a bad thing to just fall flat on our faces. And then he has some comfort here, the rest of verse 17. The Lord himself begins to comfort John. So we have some encouragement. And the first thing is, verse 17, comfort. Do not be afraid. In fact, literally, stop being afraid. Uh, this conveys the idea that not only did it fall on his face like a dead man, but he was probably shaking. 
So he says, stop being afraid. I am the first and the last. Here is an identification of Jesus with eternality. I am the first and the last. And the living one. Uh, the ever-living one, the self-existent living one, the one with life that is that does that is not does not de- depend on anything outside of myself. God is self-existent; He has no needs whatsoever. He has self-existent life. I am the living one. And I was dead. This refers to his death. This is the same Jesus. That's why he was like the Son of Man. He appeared like the Son of Man. And Jesus says, yeah, I am that same one. I, I was dead. Now, we know the purpose of it. It's not brought out here, but uh, implication is all of the work that he did for our redemption. I'm the one. I'm the one that died for you, John. I'm the one that went to the cross. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. I'm eternally alive. I rose from the dead. I'm alive. And I have the keys of death and Hades. An interesting association. Death and Hades. So, life and death. In other words, the keys uh, conveys the idea of access uh, or he's the one that opens the doors to these things. To death and Hades. He is the determiner. He will be the judge. He will be the one that decides death and those that end in Hades. Uh, So this is encouragement. This is comfort. 17, we have uh, the last part there, the claims. I am the first and the last. And then the claims go into verse 18. The living one, and I was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. And they extend to the end of verse 18. In verse 19, we have a command. So, Paul is comforted. Paul is encouraged by... Uh, the claims that Jesus makes concerning himself. And now he is commanded in verse 19. Again, this is another command. He was already commanded in verse 11. Write in a book what you see, verse 11. And now in verse 19, again, write, therefore, the things which you have seen. Reiteration of record these visions. These are important. These this is scripture. This is this is God's last word. This is the closing of the canon. 
Now, John wrote some of the last books of the Bible, so John was conscious of the last revelation that God had, and now he is privileged to basically close off the canon of Scripture. So, this writing and the command to write is reiterated in verse 19. And specifically, we looked at this last night, the things which you have seen, that's what he just observed, just the vision, the things that he just saw, the things which are, and I mentioned this is Jesus' outline of the book, it's a temporal outline. So, the past tense, the things that you have seen, referring to the vision, the things which are pertaining to present tense, uh, probably a reference of what's going to follow in chapters 2 and 3, and the things which shall take place after these things, after the things which are after the church age. That's the future aspect. That's the eschatological portion of this revelation. That's a portion that deals with chapters 4 through the rest of the book. So that's Christ's outline of the book. It's a temporal outline. And then in verse 20, he's going to do some explanation. Or using the alliteration of C there, comfort, claims, command, and now clarification. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw. Now, in the New Testament, a mystery is not something mysterious in the way that we think of a mystery. Uh, it's something that is not revealed. Something that is, is now going to be revealed. It's a, it has been hidden, and now it's a mystery in the sense that it's now going to be revealed. That's the idea of mysterion, the Greek word that we have there. Uh, so, he's, he's basically identifying two symbols here. As for the mystery of the seven stars that were mentioned earlier, uh, I gave away what, what they stand for. Uh, and like we said in our introduction, we don't have the option of making those stars whatever we want them to be. Jesus tells us specifically, this is what the stars are. Now, it's not clear who, what the, even the interpretation is, but we'll discuss that when we uh, get to chapter 2. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right, right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, so he's going to interpret two symbols. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, that's interesting. What are the angels of the seven churches? The interpretation almost doesn't help us. <laughs> but at least it, limit, it limits us uh, in terms of trying to figure out what he's talking about in terms of stars. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. And then he identifies the simple symbol associated with the seven lampstands. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. So that one is clear. That one uh, doesn't have a problem of interpretation. And in the next two chapters, he's going to uh, give us 
little letters that are associated with each of those seven churches. Uh, the image is that of something that bears light. I think that's the primary image. Uh, could be an association with an, uh, an image of something that contains oil as well. And in the Old Testament, oil oftentimes is associated with the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's the source of the flame that burns in the lamp, which probably is part of the image here. So churches that are filled or have people that are filled with the Spirit are those churches that uh, reflect the glory of God. Uh, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. I think part of that is brought together in the image of the lampstand. So the church is to be the light of the world. We are to be lights in a dark age, in a dark culture. Uh, that's what the lampstand basically represents. That's the imagery. And I think that's uh, the interpretation that uh, we have here. In some of the letters, Jesus even threatens that he will take away their lampstand because if they do not repent, they're not going to be able to be light bearers. Uh, a, a discipline, uh, the application to draw there is uh, we need to do the best that we can to make sure that what people see is the glory of God, that they not see us necessarily. That they not see our our uh, our flesh that we live in the you know we don't want to live in the flesh that's a distorted picture of who we actually are. We want to be in the spirit, and when we're in the spirit, it's as if God is burning a light, and uh, the world sees a picture of who we are. Uh, the best way to display that is oftentimes in the midst of the most difficult situation. So in the, the context of suffering and persecution, which we'll see a lot of in the book of Revelation, and these churches, even in the first century, experienced that, that's the best opportunity for the light to be displayed. Because they will see that uh, we have something different from everyone else. We respond to adversity in a different way. I think that's the context of uh, the passage in First uh, Peter 3.15 where apologetics is encouraged. In other words, give an answer to those that uh, ask. Uh, why are they going to ask? Because they're going to see something different in us and it's in a context. In fact, the whole letter of First Peter is in the context of suffering and persecution. And it's in that context that when we respond rightly in the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, the glory of God is seen because it's unnatural, it's supernatural. It's, it's not what people normally do when they're under those circumstances. So that's another application that we can draw from here. So the lampstands, uh, we need to do all that we can to keep from obscuring the light, get out of the way and... Let the Lord use us in ways that uh, glorify Him. So that's chapter 1. And that's basically as, almost as far as I wanted to get tonight. But we have a little bit of time. So...
I'm going to give you just a head start on tomorrow. What we will deal with is the seven churches. I thought I had it here. We'll just pull it up. And maybe at least what we can look at tonight by way of introduction here. I, I was planning on uh, looking at these seven angels, but why don't we do that in the time that remains? We don't have too much time. Well, let me just start with uh, these seven churches. This is part of an introduction to the whole section that deals with the seven letters. And one of the things that I wanted to talk about was uh, their pertinence. And by that, what I mean, uh, how do we apply these? In other words, um, uh, how do we use these letters or how do we approach them? Uh, I mentioned in our introduction that the the historicist interpretation of the book of uh, Revelation looks at these seven churches uh, at least from two aspects. Uh, they don't necessarily deny some of the things that I'm going to mention in terms of the proper use, but I think they go beyond the intent because of the perspective they're coming from. Uh, they would, I think, most historicists would interpret uh, these letters much like we would interpret them, except they would add that these are pictures of uh, a kind of a, a panorama of church history from the beginning to the end. And they would see, for example, the the first letter, the church to the church at Ephesus or the letter to the church at Ephesus, as a picture of the apostolic church. Uh, particularly the apostolic church towards the end of the first century, losing its first love. Uh, it's a very good church. A lot of positive qualities are mentioned, more so than most of the other churches. Closer to the apostles, so that would be the way they would interpret it. And then they would interpret the last one, the church at Laodicea, as the church at the end of the age, a lukewarm church, apostate church, uh, a church in need of restoration, a church fallen from the Lord, uh, that idea. So that's the historicist view. Uh, part of the problem is, if that is true, the only ones that really fit are the first and the last. The, the ones in the middle really don't fit church history. Uh, they try to stretch them to do, but it's uh, the ones that I've read, I, it's not very convincing. Uh, so it, I would reject a historicist approach because it, it's just too inconsistent with what you have in the text. I think first and foremost, like all of Scripture, it has an original audience. 
And that original audience had particular characteristics, had particular needs that are addressed in that environment. For example, the church at Corinth uh, had all of those problems that are contained in the book that Paul addresses. So there was a historical church that had all of those problems with particular people that are even referenced in it. The primary application of the church, or the, the, uh, the revelation, or the letter in the case of the Corinthians, was to those first century believers. But because of inspiration, and because God selected that writing and inspired Paul, and also inspired him to write an inerrant work, it would have application to churches throughout the church age and perhaps even beyond. Uh, that's why we would read 1 Corinthians and find application to us. I think these letters are similar to that. These little individual letters have a particular application to the particular churches of the first century that had these particular characteristics and problems that Jesus addresses. So I think we should treat them much like we would treat 1 Corinthians or any of the other letters of Paul. Uh, so that would be uh, the primary focus of our approach, and, and that's the way that I will, I will uh, approach them. So because of inspiration, the, the little letter to the Ephesians also is applicable to the, the church at Pergamum. Uh, it would also be applicable to the other seven or the other six churches besides the church at Ephesus. Just like it would be applicable to all churches throughout church age, the church age. So it's applicable to individual churches. Another way, and the way we generally approach Scripture, how is this passage, how is this letter applicable to me personally? Well, I think we can do the same thing with all of these letters. And we should find application in them. In other words, if I, I, maybe I'm lukewarm. If I'm lukewarm, then I need to apply what Jesus is, is teaching to the church at uh, Laodicea. So, there's lots of practical application, and we ought to view these churches no different than we would uh, view, or these letters no different than we would view any of the other letters of Paul, or the letters of Peter, or Jude, or elsewhere. Yes. Right. Yeah, I would agree with that. So, um, approach these. Uh, I would avoid the historicist approach. And I'm not sure how the preterist would take it. I, I, I can't remember uh, what some of those commentators. But we would take it much like any other piece of inspired literature. And we can find application to us as well. Uh, so, the next thing, some of the properties. Why don't we leave that for tomorrow? And we'll talk a little bit about some of the characteristics that kind of apply to all of the churches. Uh, let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer at this point, And we'll pick up in the morning.
what time are we supposed to be here? 8.30, was that the... 8.15, okay. Glad you pointed it out. Let's close. Father, we praise you for this picture of who you are that we have throughout chapter 1. And we saw two outbreaks of worship. And we just pray that you would remind us and, and as we meditate and as we think upon these passages, may, may we be able to visualize uh, at least a little glimpse of what John was able to see. Uh, and even he was probably trying to convey something that he could not convey, uh, something that is incomprehensible even. Uh, we would desire to, to get a little glimpse of that, that we may be able to fall on our faces as well, because we should, and you are worthy of our worship. And we desire to deepen our worship, and we desire to be responsive to your word in, in, in such a way that uh, we are affected and that our hearts are bowed and that we are able to see your awesomeness. So I just pray that uh, as we've looked at this vision that John saw, that it would uh, touch us in the same way as we leave here tonight. And we pray for tomorrow and we pray that uh, as we look at these letters to these seven churches, that uh, we would also gain insight into other practical areas in our own personal Christian walk. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.